You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Uh, Grab your Bibles, though, this morning and uh, turn over. We're going to begin in 1 Peter chapter 3. And, you know, what we're doing right now, typically we would be going through a singular book of the Bible. We would just be taking the book of Ephesians and our Wednesday night study would be verse by verse through, through the book of Ephesians. And then Sunday mornings would be a, a typical, uh, you know, encouragement from, from that text as well. We took a break from that uh, for the last several weeks and it was just heavy on my heart to share sort of um, not just the who we are as Christians, as followers of Jesus, but the how we are. Right? We focus a lot of attention on who we are. We're new creations in Christ. We've been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We've believed on his death and resurrection. Therefore, we have a new life in him, and we have the hope of eternity through Christ, which is all true. But one of the things that I think is important for us to do is to understand how we are then, this new life that we have. What, it is, that, what is it that we are recognized and defined by as followers of Christ. Now, this is an endless study in one sense because that's the, the scope of Scripture is telling us who and how we are as new creations in Christ. But there's really eight points that I wanted to spend time going through. And, and the goal of this isn't to create a new Ten Commandments or a new list of instructions for the church to say, hey, this is how you have to behave to be a Christian. Rather, it's, it's the opposite of that. Hey, you as a new creation in Christ, you as a follower of Jesus, this is actually what it should look like according to what we're told in the scripture. This is how your life should be defined, and this is how you and I, in our walk with Christ, measure ourselves and say, are these things present in my life? These things that we've been looking at, right? And, and the, the real end of the story or the real point of all of this is that you and I should have a passionate love and desire for Jesus. If we are in Christ, if he has died and our sins have been removed from us, like the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west and we have this new life, our response should be, passionate love for Jesus, not just attendance to his church, right? We can't just be church attenders. That doesn't signify or it does, it's not emblematic of a passionate love for Jesus. And, and you, you might think, Lucian, why are you going on and on about like this passionate love for Jesus? What, are you some sort of Jesus freak? Number one, yes. But, but, but number two, it's this. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes the parallel. He uses the analogy of a marriage between a husband and a wife as a reflection of the relationship between Jesus and his church. This analogy has hit home for me in the last several weeks in two ways. Number one, I got to do a wedding ceremony a couple weeks ago, and every time you do a wedding ceremony, my goodness, it just brings home the importance and the beauty and the godliness of what marriage represents. Number one, that's the positive. The second part's a little more tragic. We, we, Carly and I, in our relationships over the years, we've gotten to know people in a lot of different places, Portland and Southern Oregon and East Coast, a lot of different places, And for whatever reason, right now, we've just been running into couples that are breaking up. 
marriages that are, that are that are breaking and people getting divorced and let me first off say this if you have experienced that yourself if you've been divorced or remarried please do not hear this as a condemnation of what you've experienced in your life god's grace is good divorce is not the unpardonable sin it's not a rejection of the holy spirit but it's something that god takes seriously Marriage is, in fact, a sacrament. It's a holy place where we're united with Christ, hence what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5. That marriage is a mystery, but the mystery is revealed to us in the image of Jesus Christ and the church. And so in the same way that we're unified with Christ through baptism, in the same way we're unified to Christ through the communion elements, partaking of his body and his blood, marriage is a picture of Jesus and his church. It's a place where we're united to Christ. And so what we've been experiencing is all these people that are just, they're, they're going through hard times and they're separating or they're getting divorced and it's just breaking our heart to, to watch these things unfold in front of us because, because marriage is supposed to be this example of the passionate love between Jesus and his church. See, Jesus is passionate about you. I hope you understand that. Jesus is not some faraway image or, or just the picture of a cross or the memory of something that happened when you were at youth camp some summer long time ago. Jesus right now is passionately in love with you. In fact, he's investing his entire life into you. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he gave his body and his blood for you. He's giving himself over to you. And we as the church are supposed to give ourselves to him in the same way. There's supposed to be this passionate desire for people to know Jesus and join into that relationship. And that's imaged in the relationship of a husband and a wife. They're supposed to be passionately in love with one another. They're supposed to be invested into each other more than they're invested into anything else. And here's the, where the parallel is heartbreaking and tragic to me. In the same way that we see husbands and wives a lot frequently not investing into themselves, putting other things over their spouse, considering other things more important than their husband or their wife, you end up with these loveless marriages where people look at each other and go, our differences are too great. They are irreconcilable. Do you know that that's the number one reason people get divorced? Irreconcilable differences. I wish that phrase had never been invented. Wasn't allowed into the legal system. You know why? Because in the picture of Jesus in the church, Scripture tells us that in Jesus' death, he has now reconciled you and me to the Father. There's no such thing as an irreconcilable difference. Not according to Jesus. Not in his death and resurrection. And so what happens is you, you, we've seen all these marriages where, where someone's putting their job above their spouse. And the job is everything. Someone's putting their their possessions, their house, their cars above, above their spouse and their, their job or their possessions are, are everything. Here's one of the big ones. People who idolize their children and put their children above their spouse. Well, but it's all for the kids. And, and the reason we're getting divorced is because it's actually better for the kids. Hogwash, baloney, use some other expletive that I don't want recorded. That's garbage. 
The best thing you can ever do for your kids is love each other as husband and wife. Show the image of Jesus and his church to your children. No matter how much money you have or don't have, no matter how many opportunities you have or don't have or can't give them or want to give them, love each other as parents and put each other first and your kids will pick up on that. They'll get that. They'll understand those things spiritually even more than physically. And so here's why I'm just banging on and on and on about this love for Jesus. Because if we as Christians don't reciprocate, we don't put Jesus over and above everything else in our life, what often happens, and this is tragic, is that you find people who maybe at one point were passionate about their faith. They were worshipers of Jesus. They were in love with Jesus. They were inviting people to church. But at some point, they started to put something else above Jesus to the point that they say, Jesus, your interests and my interests, they don't reconcile. And tons of people end up with, quote unquote, irreconcilable differences with the church. So-and-so said, said this. So-and-so did that. And they didn't like my program or they didn't use my talents or they didn't like the color of the carpet or that guy sings too much or how come he's always on the microphone? And, and, and I don't like that, right? So irreconcilable differences to the point that you have people who leave the relationship with Jesus when that's supposed to be the most passionate thing that you have available to you, the most fulfilling thing, the most unifying thing that we have. And so this whole series, the last couple weeks, and and then today what we're going to talk about, it's all for us to be able to be passionate about our love for Jesus and say, this is how we're defined. This is how we're recognized as followers of Jesus. I'm so thankful for James being able to be here last week uh, to to teach and talk about the importance of God's word. Um, That's just a blessing and there's so much truth in that that we go to God's word to hear what he has to say and we even learned that that last week or several weeks ago. Now, what we've covered so far, let me do just a brief recap and then we'll jump into the rest of it. The church should be recognized and defined by several things. We've covered three so far. The first is this, the church, you being a part of the church, should be recognized and defined by, number one, love. Love should be the defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus. Over and above everything first in line, love and love with some specificity. Love for the expansion of God's kingdom. This is not some secret gathering where we know what's going on and and we don't really tell anybody. We just sort of kind of collect ourselves together. No, the expansion of God's kingdom and the love for the expansion of God's kingdom should be primary in our hearts. We should desire to tell other people about our relationship with Jesus. We should desire for them to come into the family of God, for God's kingdom to rule and reign right now, even as Jesus prayed, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our love is what defines us. Love for the expansion of God's kingdom and then love for one another. This is the example to the world that Jesus is real, that you and me and everyone in this room who, based on just one-on-one personalities and relationships, have no business getting along. None of us. There's no reason why we should all sort of be unified and together and enjoy being in the same room together for all kinds of reasons. Our flesh gets in the way, and, and we could justify saying, I don't like being in big crowds. I don't like these people in particularly. I don't like what they're wearing or how they smell or anything else, right? That's an easy, we could find those reasons real easily. And yet because of Jesus, 
we have this love for one another that we get back in the room and who cares what broke this morning and who cares who spilled the coffee and who cares what happened on the car ride over. We're here with God's people and we love each other. This is the defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus, of someone who's a part of the church. Love for the expansion of God's kingdom and love for one another. Number two, we are defined and recognized by being biblically literate. You cannot love what you do not know. The fallacy of love at first sight or Disney love or whatever you want to talk about in the movies, it doesn't work. You have to know God to fully love him. Ask anybody who's been married for a long time, right? And somebody who's, they've gone through trials together, they've gone through ups and downs and they have a life and they have this history. And, and what happens when you talk to them about sort of the love that they have for one another today versus 20 years ago? If they really have invested in each other and loved each other, they'll say, I love them more now today than I did back then. I thought when I was 19 or 20 years old, I could never love anybody more, right? Well, at the time, probably that's true. But 20 years down the road with all that you've invested and all that you've spent time with and the ups and the downs and the everything, somehow that love is deeper and it means more, yeah? This is the kind of love that we're supposed to have and it's expressed by being biblically literate. We're defined by knowing what God's word says. That's why we read the word, we study the word, we meditate on the word as we learned several weeks ago. When we're biblically literate, it leads to the third defining characteristic of who we are as followers of Jesus. The church should be defined and recognized by love, by being biblically literate, and then by having a biblical worldview. That means that everything that we think about socially, politically, relationally, gets filtered through this biblical literacy that we have. When we understand who God is, what Jesus did for us, and then the instructions that are given to us as believers, it shades everything that we experience in the world. You can't believe one thing spiritually as a Christian and then believe something that opposes what the scripture says politically. You can't. It's not possible. I don't get into a lot of politics up here, and I don't talk about these things a lot, but I will say this. If you are a follower of Christ, your biblical worldview, based on your biblical literacy, has to influence everything else. There is no lesser of two evils. There is no compromise on those things. You can be a one-issue voter. That issue has to be Jesus. That's just it. And you say, well, but what about the, the, the differences and what about the comparison and what about the fact that there's nuance to all these kinds of things? Listen, at the end of the day, we're not going to answer to a governmental system here in this world. At the end of the day, meaning the ultimate end of the day, end of our life, we're going to answer to Jesus. You realize our works are going to be tested. Our life is going to be subject to the examination of God to say, who are you? Are you mine? What did you do with your life? Did you say you were mine just with your lips? Or did the life that you lead actually give testimony to the fact that you were passionately in love with me? This is the truth. And so this biblical worldview leads us to the next step of what we're defined by, what we're recognized and defined by. So we've done number one, love. Number two, being biblically literate. Number three, having a biblical worldview. Number four, the church and those who are a part of the church are recognized and defined by being apologetically mindful. Spell it as best as you can. Spell check it later. 
apologetically mindful, all right? Here's how I'll explain this. Apologetics, in short, is the ability to defend your faith. That's all it is. To be, to be in a conversation about apologetics or to practice apologetics, it's just the science of defending your faith. If we are biblically literate, if we have a biblical worldview, it is going to put us in a position to be able to be apologetically mindful. And let me, let me say it this way as well. We can all get caught in our discussions with people about uh, the Lord. And, and, and let me just acknowledge this. I get that sharing our faith for some reason, no matter how much you love Jesus, no matter how excited you are about the church family, there's something about sharing our faith that puts us in this weird nervous position, right? Where it's just like, oh man, I gotta talk to him about Jesus. My heart's burning. I know it's right. The Holy Spirit's leading me to, but I'm in the middle of Albertsons. I, I'm not sure this is the right place. You guys, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not sure if this is where I'm supposed to do that. And yet the Lord's like pushing you, kicking you in the kidneys to go, tell him about Jesus. Invite him to church. Pray for, in the middle of Albertsons? Yes. And, and here's the reality. We have to acknowledge we all experience that, right? We all get that, okay? But here's the thing. We, we can all get caught with that sense of nervousness. And when it comes to our biblical knowledge or lack thereof, we can all feel that nervousness because at some point we're all going to have to give this answer. I don't know, right? Because here's one of the things that causes us to be nervous. If we were to share our faith with someone, I know I feel nervous at times when someone, I know that they're going to have an answer for me. Well, don't you know that the Bible was written by men? How do you know that you actually have the right books in the Bible? Don't you know that there are other traditions that have other sacred writings? How is it that you Christians could be so arrogant that someone on the other side of the world who's never heard about Jesus is going to hell just because they didn't believe the way that you believe, right? We're, we're ready. We know people are going to have objections. We know that in the last days, Scripture says there are going to be scoffers People who hear about the fact that we believe in Jesus and we love Jesus, they're going to go, what? That's so like ancient, antiquated, that's so not modern, that's not progressive. Don't you know we've disproven all the things that you Christians claim? God created the world in six days. <sighs> right? And so what makes us so nervous about sharing our faith a lot of times is that we are going to have to get comfortable saying, I don't know, but I'll find out. That's what it means to be apologetically mindful. I may not know the answer right now, but I'm willing to go find out. That's a great answer. That's okay. Can I encourage you to, to know that it's okay to say, I don't know, but I'll go find out. See, we should never be caught thinking the thought, I don't care enough to go find out, right? And far too many Christians over the years and now in our society, when confronted with the challenges to the faith, when, when confronted with the question of why do you believe what you believe, they don't actually care enough to take the time and go find out. That is tragic. Being a part of the church, being recognized and defined by being apologetically mindful simply means that we are practicing a practical application 
of our biblical worldview. It means that we have the ability to discuss, we have the ability to inform, we have the ability to explain why we believe what we believe and why we practice our faith in the way that we do. That's being apologetically mindful. Let you, you turned over to 1 Peter chapter 3, hopefully. That's the scripture I told you to start with. I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and begin in verse 13. Begin in verse 13, it says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Let me just stop there for a second. Listen, the idea of zealousness simply means to be passionate about something. means to be consumed with something. Husbands, you should be zealous for your wives. Wives, you should be zealous for your, for your husbands, right? Jesus is zealous for us so much so that he gave his life for us. We should be zealous for Jesus. And if you're zealous for something that is good, there's no reason to be ashamed or there's nobody who can really do harm to you, especially not with their words, if you're pursuing something that's good. Verse 14, 1 Peter 3, 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed have no fear of them, nor be troubled, troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And mark this, 1 Peter 3.15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We are always supposed to be prepared to be able to give an answer of why do you believe in Jesus how can you believe the fairy tales of Scripture? Well, actually, they're not fairy tales. We have more direct manuscripts of Scripture than most of the historical books used in academia, right? We have so many pieces of evidence that say this is not just real, but it's true. We should always, always be ready to give a defense for the reason that we have hope, you Christians, don't you see that the world is, is in trouble and don't you see all the political division and don't you see all the problems with culture and society and gender politics and all these kinds of things? And we as Christians should say, yeah, but we have hope. Man, we know that Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna set things right. We know that if you place your faith upon Jesus, your sins are forgiven and that you have the kind of life in you that cannot be quenched by the troubles of this world. This is the defense that we have to mount against those who would mock us, those who would attempt to persecute us or cause us harm relationally, uh, socially, psychologically, physically. Hold on to this hope and be ready to give a defense for these things. That's what it means to be apologetically mindful. And, and mark this, if we love the Lord, if we're biblically literate, if we have a biblical worldview it will lead to us being apologetically mindful. These are progressive. If you know what the word says, then you have the ability to discuss it. You have the ability to give an answer to why you have hope. And the, re and, and the reality is, is that we should, in our love and passion for Jesus, desire to know more. Mark down uh, Matthew chapter 5. I'll read it to you, don't need to turn there. But in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which many scholars believe is the, is the, the fulfilling, fulfillment of the teaching of Jesus, meaning everything that Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount, everything else in the Christian life is simply an outgrowth of. This is the foundational truths of what we believe. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, 
Blessed are those, or happy are those, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Man, to be apologetically mindful simply means that we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That's another way to define it. That we're seeking after truth, we're seeking after what what Jesus would want us to know and be able to explain to others around us. Now, now, in a very practical way, let, let me get to point number five in our big study here. We're recognized and defined by our love. We're recognized and defined by being biblically literate, having a biblical worldview. Number four, being apologetically mindful. All of those things are evidenced by number five, the church being recognized and defined by a worship lifestyle. This is a huge one. We should be recognized by those who are not believers. We should be defined even within our gathering as the church. We should be recognized and defined by a worship lifestyle. Now let's, let's define this a little bit. See, when we talk about worship in our day and age, typically what we're talking about is someone leading singing. That's how we sort of define worship. We say, oh, it's time for worship, or let's have a worship time, or, or whatever. And what we typically mean is someone grab a guitar or an instrument and lead us in the singing of praise. See, there's a difference. Worship is not just singing songs of praise. That's a part of it. Worship is your entire life turning toward God and simply acknowledging him in everything that you do. And not just saying acknowledging in the sense of, oh God, you're real, but loving him, thanking him, interacting with him. Worship is an all-consuming passion for the things of God, okay? That's our functional definition. Worship is an all-consuming passion for the things of God. Being a disciple of Jesus who is growing and maturing requires that we engage in specific activities. Now, here's that, here's that little rub that we come up against, perhaps. That when we were told about Jesus, perhaps it was explained to us that once you believe upon Jesus, there's nothing else that's required of your life. You just believe in Jesus, he takes care of the rest, right? You believe in Jesus, you got heaven to look forward to, and no matter what else happens in your life, you're good. But here's the problem. When you become biblically literate, yeah, when you start to understand what God tells his people about being in a relationship with him, there are specifics. There are markers. There are identifying characteristics that say, oh, that person's in a relationship with God. See, it'd be like getting married, right, and saying, I got married. We had the wedding day. We spoke vows of commitment between, before, between each other before God and our family and our friends and everyone was there and they saw that we got married. But for the next 50 years of your life, you didn't sleep together, you didn't eat together, you didn't tell each other that you loved each other, you lived in separate places, you didn't, you, you get what I'm saying? Wouldn't that be weird to say I got married to someone but then you didn't engage in a relationship with them at all? There are specifics about being married that you do because you're married. The same is true about our relationship with God. Now, as I always define, understand, these are not the specifics that relate to salvation. 
Our salvation is through Christ's sacrifice alone. That's it. There's nothing else for the purpose of salvation. But once you are saved and you're in this relationship with God, there are specifics. There are things that we do in this relationship that define our love and our passion and our zeal for God through worship. I want to tell you about about three things, three things that I believe define a worship lifestyle. If you were to do a study on this through the scripture, there's plenty more. But I want to try and keep it as simple as possible in regard to this point, number five that the church is recognized and defined by a worship lifestyle. The first is this. We are, a worship lifestyle includes, number one, prayer. Mark that down and, and understand that prayer is, yes, talking to God. Yes, it's bringing our requests to him. Yes, it's interceding on behalf of others. But there are some characteristics about prayer that I want you to be aware of. Number one is this, that prayer is supposed to be frequent and constant in our lives. Prayer is supposed to be frequent and constant. We don't just pray at meals. We don't just pray at church. We don't just pray when the car is careening off the side of the road, right? Like that's, that's typically when most of us start praying, oh God, right? No, prayer is supposed to be frequent and constant. Mark down 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, rejoice always, meaning, meaning always be rejoicing to God, giving thanks to God. And, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 says, Pray without ceasing. Never stop praying. If you've never heard that before, I get it. So how am I supposed to do anything else? If I'm supposed to be praying all the time, never stopping praying, how am I supposed to focus on anything else or do anything else? You understand also that Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit, whom you are sealed with when you believe upon Jesus, intercedes on our behalf. That the Holy Spirit prays for us in ways that we can't even comprehend. So you understand that being filled with the Holy Spirit, giving God control of your life, allowing yourself to just be moved by by the Holy Spirit where he tells you to go, what he tells you to do. You understand that prayer is being offered for you in all of those things. So to pray without ceasing, there's the the, uh, awareness of it, right? I'm gonna pray right now. I'm gonna spend my time in prayer. I'm going to talk to God. I'm going to make requests. I'm going to converse with him. But then when it's time to go to the task of the day, your job, your relationship, the the thing in front of you, whatever it might be, understand that you can pray without ceasing by simply surrendering your life to the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So prayer includes being frequent and constant, right? Pray without ceasing. Jesus models for us prayer in this way. Prayer should be private, Prayer should be private. You should understand that in your life to be defined and recognized as a part of the church, as a follower of Christ, you should have private prayer time. You should have, as the Bible describes, a a, a prayer closet, if you will, a place where you go away from every other distraction and spend time in prayer. Mark down the gospel according to Mark. Chapter 1, verse 35, Jesus shows us this, that prayer should be private. In Mark 1.35, it says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Those of us who don't like to get up early might want to check the translation on this one and go, are we really sure Jesus said while it was still dark? Like early dark, late dark? What if I just stay up till after midnight? Does that count as being really early the next day? The whole idea here is that Jesus prioritized in the midst of his ministry, in the midst of what God was calling him to do, Jesus prioritized that time where he would go away by himself and privately interact with the Father. You and I need to have that as well. Private prayer time where we go and we just talk to God. Just us, just me and him. Go, go somewhere quiet, turn the phone off, put the technology away, and just go and sit and be quiet. It's one of the best dis- disciplines that, that uh, I've ever been taught in my life is to create for yourself a holy hour for the day. The time where you do read the scripture, the time where you do just spend time talking to the Lord, the time where you perhaps personally by yourself offer praise to the Lord, right? Healthy, 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 and a defining characteristic of who we are as a part of the church. So prayer should be frequent and constant. Prayer should be private, but prayer should also be public. Public. Prayer should be out there for others to see, not as a show, not to show off, but for the express purpose of testifying to our relationship to the Lord. Mark down 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. 1 Timothy 2, 8. Paul says this very simply to young Timothy the pastor as he's giving instructions to Timothy as he's going to be leading a church at Ephesus and he's going to be the one who's sort of instructing the people there. Paul says this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Very specifically, Paul says that prayer is a public activity. And he also gives us instruction to the physical nature of it. It's kind of funny when you look at uh, prayer throughout scripture and you look at praise throughout scripture, they're actually inverted for us most of the time. See, for us, when we pray, there's this real sort of uh, puritanical way that, that this sense of humility, which is not a bad thing, but doesn't necessarily accord with scripture. Oftentimes when we pray, what do we do? Just what do we do when we pray? We close our eyes and we bow our heads. Oh, see, we're being humble. Bow your heads and pray with me, respecting the privacy of those around you. This is a personal thing. Prayer is personal. No, prayer can be private and should be private. But what you see in scripture most of the time in the expression of prayer is wide open, eyes open, face up, hands up. God, we are surrendering ourselves to you. Now, Contrast that with praise, right? The expressions of praise that we're often shown in churches that we watch online, YouTube, perhaps we've experienced it ourselves, is that in times of praise, what do we do? We lift our hands and we're expressive and we go outward and upward, right? You look through scripture and you watch how people praise the Lord. Any guesses as to what the description of their body posture is most of the time? Kneeling or flat on their face. Why? Because the glory of God is not something that you and I can behold. More often than not, when people are passionately worshiping the Lord, they're brought to a place in praise 
of humbling themselves and getting low before God. And so truth, and, and this may freak people out, but if this were to happen that we're somewhere to, we're, were to start kneeling during worship, that's biblical. What if someone were supposed to were just to lay down and go, I just I can't I can't get any lower. This is where I'm supposed to be to acknowledge God's greatness, and they laid down during worship. There are some here because culturally we would just go, that's weird, that's Pentecostal, that's holy roller. They're, boy, they're really trying to get attention to themselves in this worship time. No, that's biblical. See, there's some challenges for, for you and I as we go through what it means to be a part of the church. There's some things that we have to challenge in our cultural attunedness, things that have been taught to us or exemplified to us that don't necessarily match up with a biblical worldview. We have to challenge ourselves in these things and measure ourselves against what God expects and what he tells us because there are things we should be doing as Christians. And so when Paul tells Timothy, this is what I expect out of you guys in the church, they're at Ephesus. When you pray, lift holy hands in prayer. Submit yourself to God's authority and to his will. This is what he desires. And so prayer is to be frequent and constant. Prayer is to be private. Prayer is to be public. And then mark this, prayer is to be thorough. Prayer should be thorough. Prayer should not be rub-a-dub-dub, thank God for the grub. Sorry, maybe it's funny when you're a kid. It's just not the way things should go. The flippant, God is good, God is great. Thank you for the food, amen. Sorry. Prayer should be thorough. Prayer should be deep. Prayer should be emotional. Prayer should be real. We've been meeting with the guys the last several weeks on Wednesday night instead of our Bible study, and we've been talking about the, what, what it means to just love Jesus, and, and a lot of it has to do with our confession of sin. A lot of it has to do with our prayer life and how we come to the Lord, and the reality is that there needs to be a realness. There's no King James language in our prayers, right? We don't have to all of a sudden when we come in prayer, oh, thou great and mighty creator and sustainer of all life. Like, that's not, no, that's not how we're supposed to pray, Look at the Psalms. David just would cry out and go, oh God, they're going to kill me. That's his prayer. Like, would you strike my enemies dead? Maybe that's a prayer you want to pray recently. Prayer is this real thing, man. And it's thorough. And when I say thorough, what I mean is it affects every area of our life. There's nothing we hold back from God. Man, we bring everything to God in prayer. Mark down uh, Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. This is the idea of our prayer being thorough. Philippians 4, 4 to begin says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about everything, but in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, Paul is very clear here. In everything that we do, we're supposed to be praying, and we're supposed to be thanking God. Prayer is thorough. It affects every area of our life. Now, here's the thing. When we commit ourselves to pray about everything, we don't hold anything back from the Lord. Look at what Paul says in verse 7, Philippians 4, 7. When you do this, when you bring everything in prayer and supplication to the Lord, giving thanks to him, says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you dealing with anxiety? Do you find yourself to have OCD tendencies? 
Are you someone who battles with depression and darkness that you allow into your life or that seems to be imposed upon your life? Can I offer Philippians chapter four to you as a meditation? Spend some time speaking these words out loud this week. If you take everything in prayer to the Lord, if you supplicate, if you bring them before the Lord and emotionally just say, God, this is how I feel, this is what I'm dealing with, this is what the trouble is in my life, and you lay that before the Lord, Paul says that this is what will happen, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it's not gonna make sense. Understand that a lot of things that we experience spiritually don't make sense to us in the physical realm. I still have trouble, the car still won't start, I don't seem to have enough money at the end of the month to pay all the bills. The relationship doesn't seem to be working. I'm trying, but it doesn't seem to be working. Pray about everything. Give control to God where it belongs. And this is what Paul says will happen, that the peace of God, which you cannot figure out, which does not make sense, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say that it's going to cure all the problems immediately. It doesn't say that everything's going to get fixed that very moment. It doesn't mean you're going to be healed of the illness in that instance. But it says that your heart and your mind, which belong to Jesus because he died for those things, will have a peace upon them that you'll just say, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand. But I know God's in control of these things. This is what prayer does for us. This is what is part of a worship lifestyle that Everything is brought to the Lord in prayer. Frequently, constantly, publicly, privately, thoroughly, we pray. The second part of a worship lifestyle is praise. It's offering to God this thanksgiving, this glorification, this attribution to his greatness and to his goodness. It's us simply saying what is true. God, you are greater than everything else. You are higher than everything else. Just simply stating the facts about who God is. Yes, for his glory, but for our own understanding. Why is it good to sing praise? Because the praises that we sing out should be a reflection of, of what's in our heart. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's one point I want to make about praise that, again, will challenge some of us. It will cause us to perhaps even have arguments or, or things that we would object to. But I want you to listen to the accounting of the heavenly scene of Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 shows us God on the throne, shows us the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, David, Jesus Christ himself. And we see in that heavenly scene the multitudes of the nations, every tribe and tongue and nation that has been saved by the work of Christ on the cross. And we see the manner in which they are being taught how to worship. Mark down Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. It says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. The whole imagery of that is that they are entirely consumed with what they're doing. They're full of eyes all within and around, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the song of heaven. Holy, holy, 
Holy are you, Lord, above everything else. And the creatures that are singing this out are consumed with this song. This is eternity. Verse 9 says, And whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, representative of the disciples and the sons of, of, of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, they fall down, worship, praise, Are they upright, raising their hands, faces out? No, they're on their faces before the Lord. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I don't know how to communicate this in a way that doesn't perhaps seem weird to you if you were raised in an environment where worship and the expression of your love for the Lord is, is defined by meekness or quietness or, or humility. There's nothing wrong with those things, but they're not a biblical representation of what it looks like to praise the Lord. And, and the thing I've heard most over the years was, well, I'm not an expressive person in my normal life. I, I'm typically a pretty reserved, quiet person, and so in my worship, I'm the same way. I don't know how to slap someone silly enough to get them to understand that your spiritual life is not your physical life. Your spiritual life is supposed to dictate and, and, folk, and, and redirect your physical life. It's supposed to take you from the place where you're comfortable and satisfied in who you are as a person and challenge you to be the person that God desires you to be, the person that you, believe it or not, are going to be in eternity. See, the reality is, is when the four and 20 elders fall on their faces before God and worship him, they are leading the procession of every tribe, tongue, and nation in the heavenly realm, and we are all gonna fall flat on our faces. Which means... That for us to be kingdom-minded, to be the people who God has called to give testimony to who we are because of Christ, that's how we're supposed to worship. That's how we're supposed to praise him. I don't know how to, I don't know how else to, to convey that to someone that hands politely folded, looking at the screen and the lyrics, and just following along, I get it, your heart might be in the right place, but that life is not defined by the praise of God. It's just not. And you want to argue with me, great, I'd love to have a discussion about it. Honestly, if, you, if, if, if I ever say anything that challenges you or that you go, Luke, and that's not actually accurate to what I understand of the scripture, let's talk about it. I would love to have that discussion. But here's, here's my texts that, that say, well, this is what it looks like in the scripture, so, so I'm going to be a champion for that, not just because I like to be expressive when I sing, but because I believe that's one of the defining characteristics of who we are as the church because of our love for the Lord. So that's something to, to be challenged with and, and to meditate on and to consider in the word of God. Test those things out. See if they be true. Challenge yourself to, to, to be someone who, who perhaps allows yourself to submit to the Lord in a way that you move into a place that's perhaps uncomfortable for you. And I'll just tell you this right now. In this place, in this space, as far as we are concerned, please understand 
that as you pursue the Lord and as you are directed by the Holy Spirit to perhaps even go to some places that are uncomfortable for you, you are not going to be judged here. You are not going to have someone go, oh, we don't do that here at this gathering. If you simply are pursuing the Lord and going, I think this is what I'm supposed to do, perhaps a brother or sister who's mature and understands things might come alongside you afterward and go, hey, actually, consider this in the scripture. This is kind of what that looks like and what, what perhaps you were trying to express kind of is a little bit off the mark. That's discipleship. That's teaching. That's learning. And there's no fear in that. There's no embarrassment in those things. We all have to be taught how to walk before we can run, right? But understand that you're not going to be judged by, by anybody here, I would hope that if you're just simply expressing yourself to the Lord, this is not about you being the show. Trust me, I'm louder than all of you. Nobody's going to pay attention. If I'm up here, no one's paying attention to what you guys are doing. I'm loud enough to cover all of it, okay? But let me just say that if we're going to be defined and recognized as God's people by our worship lifestyle, this expressive praise is a part of it. Now, caveat. It cannot be the whole thing. There are churches and movements right now where the expressive praise is everything. There is no good teaching. There is no effective prayer. There is no accountability to righteousness in the pursuit of holiness. It's just, is the band rocking? And that's not where we're going to go with that. But we are going to be passionate and expressive in our worship of the Lord. The last thing that, that defines a worship lifestyle is one, again, that perhaps we're not as familiar with, but is super healthy and is given to us by Jesus, and that is fasting. A worship lifestyle, for us to understand what that means, is a life of prayer, but also a life of praise, and fasting. A life that includes fasting. Fasting that is frequent and focused, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, mark down Matthew 6, 16. Jesus speaking. This is, he has just taught his disciples how to pray. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's taught the disciples how to pray in that way. And then he talks about fasting in verse 16, Matthew 6, 16. And mark this, when you fast... Fasting is not the, the world of the hyper-holy. Fasting is not the, the practice of someone who is spiritually advanced. Fasting is the realm and reality of the disciples of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, this will become a part of your life and is a defining characteristic of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, Jesus says. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Whereas prayer should be private and public, fasting, the spiritual discipline of holding yourself back from something, typically food, that's supposed to be something that's between you and the Lord. Fast. Take time and just say, man, today, instead of like eating like I normally would, I'm just going to hold back from food today and dedicate the time that I would have been stuffing my face with reading scripture or spending time in prayer. 
right? Now, here, I'll offer this as well. Food is the typical fashion in, in which people have fasted. They've held back from eating food. Can I offer another suggestion to you? Fasting from food is good. We could all skip a meal or two, right? Amen. So, so fasting from food is healthy. Fasting from other things that consume us are healthy as well. Fasting from technology is one of the things that I think would be the healthiest thing in the world from us. That one day a month or one day a week or one hour a day where you just put all technology away and just go, nope, I'm just not doing it. I'm not looking at notifications. I'm not looking at the iWatch. I'm not putting headphones in. I'm actually just going to just be quiet. I'm gonna re- I'll just offer this testimony. I think I shared this before, but when we took the kids on the, on the youth trip and we kind of were out doing adventures and all these kinds of things, I, uh, I asked them right before we left, I said, okay, here's the deal. Uh, give me your phones. All of them to a T. I'm not kidding. I'm so proud of them. They all just handed over their phones. It wasn't even an issue. It wasn't like, oh, I don't know if I want to go now. It was like, okay, this is part of the adventure. And they gave me their phones. And the entire time that we were gone, five days, however long it was, nobody was just like trying to sneak into my bag and get their phone out and check their texts. Nobody was whining and complaining about, I need to talk to so-and-so. Like, it just didn't happen. They let it go. And I tell you what, the testimony of it after the fact was like, it was awesome. Wasn't distracted. Was at peace. Had deep relationships and conversations. I I may be an old fuddy-duddy on this kind of thing, but man, if we were to fast from the virtual world and actually engage in the real world, the world that God created, boy, I think there's some health in that, don't you? Yeah. So fasting is one of those things that probably doesn't get talked about enough that when we talk about all these other disciplines, all these other characteristics of us as followers of Jesus, we're like, how am I supposed to make time for all those things? How am I supposed to pray? And how am I supposed to like do all these other things that you're talking about, Lucian? Well, how about you cut off from the things that are distractions? Eating, playing with your phone, watching television, making comments on Facebook posts or following it. You see what I'm saying? Like, how about you take all that time that we waste on those things, which don't produce anything in our lives according with righteousness. I don't care how many Christian meme guys you follow on the internet. You look at it once and you forget. What if we got rid of all of that stuff and all of a sudden we have this pool of time to go, oh, I can pray. I can just meditate on scripture. I can actually be thinking about how would I answer someone if they asked me a question about my faith? I believe that these are characteristics that should define who we are as a part of the church. These are the how of what we are, not just the who. Who's important, man? We're in Christ. We're redeemed. We're forgiven. But how is the part that many of us have never been discipled or taught how to connect to, to say this is what it looks like to be a part of the church? And, and I've said this before, but, but it's, it bears repeating. This isn't about religious commitment in the sense of you have to do these things to make God happy. No, these are an outgrowth. These are the expression of who you are because Jesus died for you. And so this defining characteristic of being apologetically mindful and being and living a worship lifestyle, they're going to lead us to next week, which is our last installment of what it looks like to be a part of the church. And we're going to talk about the fact that we should be recognized and defined by godliness, 
stewardship, and community. We'll take a look at those things next week.